Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and others to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sheila Laku to talk with us about lifestyle medicine from a doctor's perspective in medical practice. Dr. Sheila Laku studied medicine at the University of Alberta and completed her residency training in family medicine at the University of Calgary. She moved to Toronto in 2008 to complete a master's degree in health sciences in family and community medicine with a concentration in global health at the Dalalana School of Public Health. In 2010, Dr. Laku started an academic family practice at St. Michael's Hospital. During her 10 years at St. Michael's, she treated many individuals facing poverty, marginalization, significant mental health challenges, and addiction. After recovering from postpartum depression herself, Dr. Laku decided it was time to change directions in her career as she firsthand realized the importance of holistic care and healthier lifestyle choices to help support her own recovery. She recently received her diploma with the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine and is passionate about empowering individuals to reach their optimal health and well-being through proven lifestyle changes. Dr. Laku is also involved in teaching, research, and advocacy for lifestyle medicine within Canada. Dr. Sheila Laku, thank you so much for joining us today on the Plant-Based Canada podcast. It's such a pleasure to get to meet you and speak with you. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your personal story and experiences. But first, we often hear the term lifestyle medicine and lifestyle-related interventions. But sometimes when I read and I hear about it, I feel like it could potentially mean slightly different things to different people. From your teaching, research, and advocacy for lifestyle medicine within Canada, how would you define the term lifestyle medicine? And can you briefly describe this from a doctor's perspective? What does lifestyle medicine mean and what does it actually entail? Sure, that's a great question. And actually, I wasn't even familiar with the term lifestyle medicine until I took the American College of Lifestyle Medicine course and exams. So the definition that I use now after taking that program um, and writing the exam is basically looking at evidence-based tools, techniques, and interventions to really help people reverse their chronic diseases. And we really focus on six pillars in lifestyle medicine. So one of them is going to be, you know, plant predominant nutrition, um, optimizing sleep, exercise, stress management, positive social connections and relationships and avoidance of risky substances. So lifestyle medicine with the pure definition through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is that. Now there's a lot of people out there that that say, well, you know, what is the difference between lifestyle medicine in this pure form and let's say functional medicine, a lot of functional medicine practitioners still focus on the six pillars of health, but it's a different discipline, right? So they also do a lot of additional testing per se. So it's a little bit different than the pure definition of lifestyle medicine. And I guess, you know, when we're talking about lifestyle medicine, generally for health and wellness, it is looking at a holistic approach to healthcare. So not just someone's physical health, but their emotional, their spiritual health, 
how they work in the community, how their connections are with others. So it's a broad definition, but we have to very, be very specific when we're practicing lifestyle medicine to say that it is based on evidence. So it's based on research. It is not just based on practices that are not evidence-based. You know, when we look at some of the top uh, chronic disease management, for example, diabetes and hypertension, we know that most of the uh, practices uh, really focus on lifestyle management, right? So when we talk about someone with diabetes, we do focus heavily on nutrition and exercise as well. So most of the clinical practice guidelines for these chronic diseases are based on lifestyle interventions. That's a fantastic definition. Thanks for sharing that. And you brought up that there's these potentially six pillars, so six different areas that we can address in lifestyle medicine. Now, how do people respond to that? Because six things seems like a lot to juggle when many people, at least sometimes I've heard this is, oh, I'll just take a pill for that. So what are some of the challenges for family physicians to practice lifestyle medicine in the community? So I think that's a really important question because it is challenging. So we know that the biggest challenge for, for people is the actual behavioral change, right? We can counsel patients on this is the type of food you should eat, or this is the type of exercise, but it really takes people behavioral change and motivation, right? And that is the biggest kind of time limiting factor. So I used to practice at St. Michael's Hospital as an academic family physician for 10 years. And that population was a very challenging population, right? We had a lot of not only physical health issues, but a lot of, you know, mental health issues, psychosocial factors, a lot of our patients were marginalized, homeless. And, you know, it was very challenging to adopt kind of a lifestyle holistic approach, right? When we have marginalized patients and also working in the community as a family physician, there is that time crunch, right? You've got a certain amount of patients that you have to see throughout the day. Um, and it can become really challenging to actually do lifestyle intervention in a time crunch. If there's a family physician or primary care provider in the community, if they belong to a family health team, for example, that has nutritional support through a dietitian or has a psychology department, that can really facilitate lifestyle changes, right? So at St. Michael's Hospital, we were very lucky. We had a dietitian in the psychology department, so we could work in a team-based approach. Because when we look at behavioral modification and lifestyle changes, it is very imperative that we have a team-based approach. It becomes very challenging if it is just the family physician or primary care provider doing this intervention. Because as we said, behavioral change takes time. It takes not weeks, it takes months, right? Um, and also we want to leverage the skills of other um, allied healthcare professionals, right? I am not a dietitian. So, you know, even though I know the concepts of how to, you know, facilitate plant predominant meals, I would like to work with a dietitian that has expertise on how to actually implement that for the patient and looking specifically in the context of the environment the patient lives in, right? It's, it's easy to say to um, a patient, you know, you should be eating such and such fruits and vegetables, but we have to look at it in the context of, can the patient afford it, right? What is the community the patient lives in? How can they actually get the food? And not only that, do they know how to prepare the meals, right? What are the family dynamics around? So it is, it's a loaded question in the sense that all these six pillars are very important, but they're, you know, it takes a lot of time to implement them. And also want to say, Stephanie, that, you know, when I specifically see patients for lifestyle medicine consults, you know, I spend an hour, I spend an hour with a patient. And at that hour visit, we try to touch on most of the pillars, but there's always a follow-up because 
you know, we have to meet a patient where they are and we have to ask a patient, what are their goals, right? So if a patient comes to me and says, you know, um, I am not willing to go and eat plants right now. I, I am going to be eating red meat, but I am willing to work on my exercise and my sleep. That's where I'm going to meet a patient, right? So we really need to um, make sure that it is very patient centered. Um, and the goals are something that are achievable for patients, because if I'm coming as a provider and um, dictating to a patient what they should be doing, that relationship is already broken, right? When we're looking at lifestyle medicine, it is a coaching relationship and it's an empowerment relationship. So we really want to have individuals be empowered because if they don't feel empowered, it, it is very hard to make changes, right? So it is a model of how we practice. And that model ideally is in a team-based environment. So it sounds like even though there are these six pillars, you're meeting the individual where they are and what is important to them. And also it sounds like there's a unified message coming from multiple different healthcare professionals and all working together to help or work with a person to achieve these goals. Yeah, no, that's exactly true. So when I, you know, usually see a patient, I get a consult and I, I will, I will, I'll start with saying, what are your top three goals? Right. And I'll, I'll talk to them about what lifestyle medicine is, how it can benefit them and the six pillars that we work on and then see where they're at. But really when I work in a team, I work with a dietitian or a health coach who really then carries the weight, right. In terms of meeting that individual every week or every two weeks to help implement the change. Right. So as a physician, I'm, I may be meeting the, the patient once every few months, but it is really the health coach that is doing the behavioral interventions. And that's a really key piece in delivering programs like this in the community. That's fantastic that that's available. So it sounds like you have ways of addressing potential barriers. Are there other ways aside from using this team approach that you find have been useful for you in your practice? So right now, when I, when I practice lifestyle medicine, I do have like um, a three month program that I offer and I work with, you know, a health coach. So, you know, the challenges, you know, number one are system level challenges that we have to deal with. Right. So most family physicians um, get remunerated based on the amount of patients they have in their roster or the amount of patients they can see lifestyle medicine, unfortunately in Canada right now does not have a special designation code right? So we use the same OHIP codes that family physicians use. And the remuneration, you know, can be challenging when you're spending an hour with a patient. So those are things that we're trying to work out um, as lifestyle medicine practitioners to make sure that we have a special remuneration, um, a special billing code, right, which will entice more physicians to practice like this, right? Because if we're forced to have a huge roster of patients, and then also do lifestyle medicine, there's just not enough time in the day. So right now, there's a lot of physicians, uh, family physicians in Canada that cannot purely provide lifestyle medicine because we just don't get remunerated adequately for that. So most of us are juggling our own primary care practices and then kind of carving out maybe a day or two a week to do a lifestyle medicine consults or create a lifestyle medicine program. And in an ideal world, there would be, you know, physicians like myself who want to focus purely on lifestyle management um, and lifestyle medicine to have the ability to do that without having to roster a lot of patients. And in that way, we can actually accept consults from other physicians without them also getting dinged if they're seeing me as a physician. So there's systemic level challenges. Okay. Then there's also awareness, right? So I didn't know that there was actually a designation 
called lifestyle medicine until I happened to come about it. We can chat about how that happened. So I didn't know that there was such a thing as lifestyle medicine until about two years ago. And so right now, one of the things I'm working on is creating awareness, creating awareness for physicians in our community, creating awareness for our residents. Because if physicians don't know that this is a way we can practice, then we can't advance the field of lifestyle medicine. So that's, you know, the other part. And then the third part is education, right? So as family physicians, I think most of us are able to counsel patients on, you know, a little bit of diet, exercise, how to manage some chronic diseases. But it was interesting when I gave um, a seminar to the residents a few uh, months ago, they, they weren't very comfortable. And these are family medicine residents in year one and two, and they weren't very comfortable on how to write an exercise prescription or how to write a nutrition prescription. Right. So if, if, a, if a physician is not comfortable doing that, then there's already a barrier that we have to overcome in terms of education. So there's there are lots of challenges. Some are very um, systemic and it's going to take a lot of advocacy from all of us in Canada to help move along lifestyle medicine in a, you know, a, a coordinated way so that we can actually move it forward and have more training for our residents who are interested in lifestyle medicine. It sounds like such a, a challenging topic because there's these different areas that all kind of need to happen simultaneously, the awareness, education, as well as those systemic level, level changes. And speaking of those systemic level, level changes, given that it is so difficult being a family physician to practice lifestyle medicine, what led you to make this leap into it? And how did this come to be a part of your practice? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, as I mentioned, Stephanie, I was part of, you know, St. Michael's academic um, family health team for 10 years. Um, I didn't know that there was such a thing as lifestyle medicine. And, you know, what led me to change my career path was actually a need for my own personal health. So I had my baby in 2018. And, you know, I went through a really bad period of postpartum depression, and it lasted for quite a, a long time. And it was you know, I, I, I saw a variety of specialists, a psychiatrist, and of course I got put on medications, lots of treatment, but I found that it didn't actually help. And through that year of kind of looking at my life, I realized that I had burned myself out in an academic career. Okay. I had already, you know, I'd stopped sleeping. I, I, I could sense the signs of burnout. And, you know, when I was um, at St. Michael's hospital, it was a really tough population to look after a really heavy load and a lot of teaching. I had a great team. I loved my colleagues and I loved the medicine, but I burned out fairly easily. And we didn't really talk about physician burnout and physician wellness as we are right now, right? COVID has highlighted the magnitude of healthcare professional burnout. Um, and so what happened was I think, you know, years of burnout um, just led to me kind of, you know, my body saying, you're done. You're done with going back to the way things were. Um, and I realized that if I'm not looking after myself, I cannot provide the adequate care and compassion that my patients need. So I made a decision to give up my academic practice. And the way I found the um, lifestyle medicine was just chance or luck or fate. I ended up taking a weekend course through Harvard around lifestyle medicine with a few colleagues. And that's where we learned about it. And I got interested in a way of practicing, which led me to then take the course and get certified. So it came out of, you know, a need, physical burnout, and, you know, an opportunity to say, how can I change the way I practice? How can I actually make a difference in people's lives? 
and actually reverse chronic illness instead of just putting on band-aid solutions. And I think the way our healthcare system is working right now, especially with COVID, is we realize that chronic diseases are just accelerating. Our healthcare system cannot support the amount of you know, chronic physical health challenges as well as mental health challenges. And I think if we can think of a silver lining with COVID, it is that it has highlighted the fact that we need to practice differently in this country, right? We have a great um, healthcare system, but it is a sick care system and it's an acute care system. So, you know, it's a great system if you were to need some, you know, acute care intervention, but it needs a lot of support when it comes to mental health and chronic disease management, right? So I think now is a perfect time. And a lot of my colleagues that practice lifestyle medicine across Canada are saying, listen, we need a way that is, you know, less expensive and a long-term solution to really help address and empower patients to reverse the disease and live a fulfilled life, right? Because there's always going to be another pandemic. There's always going to be other challenges in life. But what we've realized is that if we're empowering patients to feel in control of their life, and if they have the skills to change and adapt and be resilient, that's what's going to help patients overcome challenges, right? And I think now there's even a bigger movement on how do we support our patients that are living with chronic physical and mental health issues, issues about, you know, accessibility, uh, marginalization, race discrimination. And it's up to us as primary care physicians to really challenge the current healthcare system and advocate for this model of care, which we know is more effective, cost-effective, and will reduce the burden on our healthcare system. So it's, ex- it's an exciting time. And I think, you know, with my conversations with other physicians that are doing this work across the country, people are really moving in the right direction um, in a coordinated effort to, to bring this to light. It sounds like there is getting more awareness and potentially more of a transition as we go through the years. From your own self-care and from the care of your patients and clients, have you noticed a change in perspectives since shifting to lifestyle medicine or when you talk to people that you have shifted to lifestyle medicine? Yeah. So I'll give you a really interesting example, like a a simple one. So, you know, when I used to see my patients at St. Mike's, I would, let's say it was a diabetic patient. I would tell my patient exercise, eat well. I wouldn't really be able to counsel them a lot. And I, and I would say you need medication and you're going to be on more and more and more medication as the years progress. That is not what I say to my patients. I absolutely tell them we can reverse this and I can get you off medications. My whole mindset has shifted. And in my practice, and even in my primary care practice, I do lifestyle interventions at each visit for my general primary care practice. And I've reversed people, gotten them off medications, you know, they're feeling better. But again, it takes time and it takes motivation. Um, And also I, I recognize what my limits are, right? I can recognize the signs of burnout quickly. And I think most healthcare professionals during the pandemic have realized that they are getting burnt out, but I, I put a hard stop to when I feel like I can't do more, right? I've got a four-year-old child at home. I'm a mom. I have to also look after myself. So I do, um, you know, I've, I've made some more transitions to my nutrition. I used to think my nutrition was great, but I used to eat red meat all the time, right? My husband is like, he's a chef. I will say he's a chef and red meat was a staple in our house. And I found as soon as I transitioned more to a plant-based diet, I feel better. My sleep has improved significantly. I had severe insomnia when I worked at St. Michael's Hospital. I think part of that was burnout and anxiety that I pushed and pushed and pushed and buried. I didn't want to address that as as an issue, right? I think a lot of the things that we put on ourselves is because we feel like we have to 
overcome and we've got pressures on our, ourselves and some of it is self-inflicted, right? There's always more and more and more we can do. And I think with lifestyle medicine, the approach is how do we slow down and feel more fulfilled in what we're doing? It's not a race to who is going to do more. And it's not a race on how much you can do on four hours of sleep, right? It's your quality of life and looking at what you're feeling fulfilled with. Um, and I really look towards, you know, communities, especially in the blue zones to say, how do people live where they're feeling fulfilled? And I, you know, if I'm not feeling fulfilled, if I'm not well, I have to recognize those signs and change things. Otherwise I can't provide adequate care and I can't provide the same level of care to my patients. So that's been the biggest shift going from the way I used to practice to now in lifestyle medicine is I take more time for myself. I also take more time with my patients. Seems like this is something that you touched on this earlier in the education system, getting this um, transition starting as individuals are training to become doctors so that they can gain this information, not only for their own self-care, but for the care of their patients or clients. Can you speak a little bit more about your own involvement in the educational curriculum and the implementation of the lifestyle medicine competencies and family medicine re residency? Yeah, sure. And now, you know, the, the good thing is there's a lot more residency wellness initiatives at the, you know, at the DFCM, at the university level. Our residents are definitely, you know, there's more support around um, resident wellness. And I know when I went through residency, and this was, you know, back in 2004, there was not a, a lot of support around residency wellness. And now it's come to the forefront, which I think is really important. When I do my teaching with the residents, you know, I always reiterate self-care, right? Because that is, and, you know, self-care is such a broad definition. What does that mean, right? And it means to me being in tune with your feelings and what your body is saying, right? Your body always knows when things are out of whack. So we need to just be more in tune and to have the ability to then make changes, right? So one of the interesting projects I'm involved with through the University of Toronto Essence program with a few other colleagues, one at St. Michael's and one at Mount Sinai, is really looking at the family medicine residency programs, specifically at St. Michael's Hospital and Mount Sinai and doing an in-depth curriculum review and comparing it to the competencies in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So we're really doing a deep dive into the two years of curriculum and looking at where the gaps are. So we're using the, you know, our Canadian competencies and for family medicine and comparing it to the American college. And we're doing a huge document review on where we can improve our curriculum. Um, so this is going to consist of a lot of surveys uh, to program directors and residents and looking at how we can now establish um, the next steps for a curriculum in lifestyle medicine. And part of the work I'm doing is also um, creating a working group for like a national collaboration. So we've had a meeting already and there's been, you know, at least I would say 10 physicians throughout Canada that are doing really interesting work around curriculum development and even faculty development in lifestyle medicine, including culinary medicine, which is a really exciting field, faculty development in lifestyle medicine, and then, you know, integrating micro curriculums in family medicine. So with this national collaboration, what we're hoping is that we, instead of working in silos in our own institutions, we can share best practices, findings, and really create a national document so that perhaps in the next few years, we can actually establish a lifestyle medicine curriculum for family physicians. So those who are interested in it and making sure that once our family physicians are graduated, uh, 
that they are very competent and confident and excited to implement lifestyle changes because we have to ensure that, you know, the future generations are trained in this. They can't just stop with whoever's doing lifestyle medicine now. It has to be embedded in the curriculum. So that's a really interesting research project that we're involved in. We're just waiting kind of for, you know, ethics and grant approval and all of that. But this is going to be an ongoing, you know, personal interest of mine is to look at education around lifestyle medicine. That sounds like such a huge task, but it sounds like it has the potential to have such a big impact, not only in the education of future doctors, but also this sounds like it could potentially change the systemic level system of how things currently operate. Yeah, no, it's true. And the thing with that is whenever we're trying to make system changes, you have to research, right? You have to, you know, and I'm not a researcher, um, you know, it's not, you know, this is why I have a team because I, I definitely need a team for this research, but it's exciting because I've learned a lot through this education scholarship research on how to actually do a curriculum review, um, how to work with the team and how to implement changes. So it's it's a work in progress and I've got lots of colleagues that are helping, which is very exciting. And it's, it's interesting to see how we can actually change curriculum and with that support the healthcare system, right? So, you know, if we're looking at the United States um, where lifestyle medicine is embedded, like I think the American College of Lifestyle Medicine was founded in 2004, mm. but most of the residents, family medicine residency programs in the United States offer a lifestyle medicine curriculum and a lifestyle medicine stream. And once uh, residents complete that stream, they're able to write the exam and they get qualified in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And also what they're doing in the United States is now they're implementing it in the undergraduate medical education, which is where it should start, right? When we talk about lifestyle medicine, it shouldn't just be family physicians or primary care providers that are doing it. It should be every single specialist that can reinforce the lifestyle changes. And in Canada, we've got Quite a few, as you know, um, Zara um, is a radiation oncologist that practices lifestyle medicine and plant-based nutrition, right? So she can reinforce um, those lifestyle medicine pillars to, to her patients as well. And we've got lots of gastroenterologists and internists that also practice lifestyle medicine in Canada. So this can't just be something that primary care physicians do. This has to be implemented in every level of healthcare. So it's the same message that gets reinforced as a patient goes through the healthcare journey, right? Mm -hmm. So even if a patient has, let's say, breast cancer undergoing chemotherapy, well, how do lifestyle medicine approaches help that patient to overcome some of the toxic effects, improve their quality of life and sustain their health, right? Sleep is important. Nutrition is important. Social connectedness, mental health. So that's not just for primary care. That's for every single specialist to reinforce. So, you know, the long-term vision, if you were to ask me, Stephanie, what do I hope in 10 years or so, I would hope that there'd be not only lifestyle medicine curriculum in primary care, family medicine, but in all subspecialties and in the undergraduate medical education. I think if you were to ask all the physicians practicing lifestyle medicine in Canada, that's our goal. I mean, I think with all of us in numbers now that are doing lifestyle medicine, if we can, you know, have a concerted effort, this, this can become a reality. Oh, that's amazing and such a great goal to have. And it sounds like that there's a lot of potential for lifestyle medicine in addressing chronic disease, but it's also potentially as a role in prevention too. So potentially getting it into the education of undergraduates, it could potentially lead to their own prevention of burnout later throughout their career, not only for themselves, but potentially for those that they work with as well. Yeah, for sure. And we know from research that if a physician 
practices lifestyle medicine interventions for their own health, they're likely going to promote it to their patients, right? So if I were to be eating plant predominantly, if I sleep well, if I exercise, I'm going to counsel my patients to do the same, right? So we know that physician behaviors have a huge impact on what we counsel patients. So it's really important that we teach future physicians, future healthcare workers to practice this for themselves so that when they're counseling, they can share experiences. And I definitely share my experiences with patients and say, this is what has happened for me. This is what I do. And let's try it with you. Right. But that's very important. You've got to kind of practice what you preach, which sometimes is challenging, but it's also very important. Right. Um, we can't be counseling patients to do some certain things if we're not doing it ourselves. It's just not authentic. Right. And then patients can kind of see through that as well. So I think it's really important that we practice the same things we're telling our patients. No, I, I agree. And it's one of those things that can be challenging too, because it's looking at ourselves and being like, okay, what sort of things am I currently doing? And what am I saying to others? Or what am I encouraging? So you spoke a lot about opportunities for health professionals, but are there places where the general public can look to learn more about lifestyle medicine? So I think a good place to start is through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, and you can probably share the URL um, in the podcast as well, because there is lots of information there um, and courses. So even for physicians that don't want to take a whole course or um, certification in lifestyle medicine, there's courses like how to improve nutrition, sleep management, stress management, things like that. So small courses and curriculum. Um, is very important. I think for the general public podcasts like this, and you know, the plant based conferences are really important, because that's where they're going to get a lot of information, right. So I think, you know, there's lots of ways for the public to get information. Again, you know, generally, primary care physicians are a great source of information. I think that's why we're trying to advocate that primary care physicians know about lifestyle medicine, even if they're, they're not incorporating that into their practice, that's fine. But for them to say, well, I don't have the, you know, space in my schedule to do lifestyle medicine um, interventions, but it is important. And here's where you can go, right? So even if they're not practicing it um, with their patients, a referral system is really important or for them to say, listen to this podcast. And I do for my patients have a list of resources and podcasts and materials that I always said to them and say, these are things that I think you might be interested in and share it with your friends, share it with your you know, colleagues. And that's how we're going to spread the word. That's great, because sometimes it can be difficult to figure out where do I find credible evidence-based information, and there's a lot of information that's out there. So having that list of places that you can go and have at least confidence in what, you're, what information you're receiving, that's a really big thing. Sure. Now, I understand from St. Mike's, you also, you're working now in a program called MCURO. My apologies if I mispronounced that. <laughs> Tell us more about that. As I mentioned, I used to work at St. Michael's Hospital as an academic physician, so I no longer do that. I, I'm still affiliated with St. Michael's Hospital in terms of resident teaching and curriculum, um, and I do work with their telemedicine program once a month. But what I do now is I've transitioned my primary care practice to a community. And MCIRO is a clinic that is um, in Toronto right on University Avenue. And it's been around for 16 years. It's a great clinic and it's got, you know, allied healthcare professionals, a rehab. I used to work there actually, when I moved to Toronto in 2000, when was it? 2008. Um, when I came to do my master's, I was working there. I just, re you know, the owners reached out to me and said, would you like to start um, a lifestyle medicine program here? 
And this was during the pandemic. And I said, listen, I for sure will start something. I have no experience. I'm going to just fly by the seat of my pants and, and see what happens. And so I started with actually a six month lifestyle medicine program with the dietitian. We had, you know, a few patients that came through, I found a six month program was very long. And so recently I've modified it to a three month lifestyle medicine program. So it's myself and a nurse who is actually trained as a health coach. So she um, is trained in nutrition, but also behavioral counseling. So this program is just like launched a revamp program. And we take referrals from anyone in the community. Um, and how it works is they see myself and it's OHIP covered when they see myself as a physician. And then there is a cost for the health coach. Um, and the health coach, her name is Jessica, will be seeing a patient every two weeks for the three months. And I do follow up. So what we're really hoping is this team-based approach will help to address root causes. And um, we also have a referral system through MCIRO where we refer for um, psychotherapy as, as needed and uh, other allied healthcare professionals. So, you know, as, as we said, we really in lifestyle medicine try to deal with the root cause of illness. And so it's really important. What I found is that we have access to mental health services because that's a huge component, right? So it's, it's hard to tell patients and counsel patients on how to sleep well, eat well and exercise if there's a history of, you know, adverse childhood events, trauma, we really have to address that. So I think it's really important in any lifestyle medicine program to, even if you don't have a, a psychologist or a, a trauma-based therapist in your program to have referrals. Cause I found that through our program at MCIRO, most of our patients needed, needed that referral to a therapist. So that's one program I'm I'm working at right now. I'm also working with MedNow to create a three-month lifestyle medicine program for their clients. And it's just been a learning progress, right? There's, you know, people ask me, well, how do you create a successful program? And it, there's no, I don't think there's a secret sauce to it. I think what we have to do is see what our clients want in that community, see what works in terms of cost, because one of the biggest barriers is cost, right? As a physician, they can see me and I can bill OHIP, but if we need um, a psychologist or a dietitian or a health coach, that all comes from extended benefits. And if patients don't have it, that's a real limiting factor. So uh, what I also do is if patients don't have extended benefits, I will just see them one off and do most of the counseling. Um, again, it's not as effective as a team, um, but I do offer that as well, kind of just, you know, one or two sessions with myself to kind of lay the foundations. But that's another challenge in our system is that we don't have enough OHIP covered funding for, you know, mental health, which is really important. So those are one of kind of the barriers, but yeah, that's an exciting program through MCIRO. Um, we're excited to have patients come through. I'm also moving my primary care practice there. So I'll be doing both my primary care practice and lifestyle medicine through there. Well, that's fantastic. So if anybody is in the Toronto area and interested, check it out. Yeah. And we're doing, it's all virtual. So if anywhere. How do you find the virtual counseling? Do you find that there's any specific challenges with that or assessing potential um, barriers to, is this person ready to make a change in certain areas or what areas would be useful for individuals to make a change? How does that work? Yeah. So generally, I mean, virtual medicine, I mean, there's a lot of benefits. I think one of the drawbacks obviously is I can't see the person, you know, I can't do a physical exam, but what I do ask my patients in lifestyle medicine is that they do have a family physician who's following them because once they finish a three month program, they're going to be discharged. And so what I usually do is I send the primary care provider consult notes. So there is some continuity of care. 
And I usually ask the family physician to order tests if needed. So that's one challenge. Um, but listen, we can, there's more reach, right? So with virtual care, definitely there's more reach. I think most of my patients so far have been very comfortable with the technology um, to do the virtual. And usually people have access to their blood pressure you know, machine. So I can get, you know, their blood pressure or I can order blood work if needed. So, so far it's been a smooth transition and, you know, we don't know how this is going to change with the ministry changing the virtual codes that are going to come in October. So it, it, it might change, but I think virtual care has been fine for lifestyle medicine because a lot of it's counseling, right. And, and you don't need to see the person physically for that. Oh, that's great. It probably opens up a lot of doors for a lot of individuals, especially if transportation is a difficulty or time just being able to see a health professional. For sure. Like we've got, I've got lots of, you know, moms and, you know, elderly people too, that can't come in. So it's been like, it's been great. And I think that was one of the benefits of COVID was just that we accelerated virtual care, which, you know, we've, we've been pushing for, for years and years. Um, so now we just have to see what the balance is, right? It's not just virtual care. It's, you know, we, we need to see people in person as well, but it's what combination works best for that patient and not one solution fits all, right? So we have to be fluid and we have to look at the whole context and, and how is virtual care important um, if done right? Mm -hmm. I feel like, as you mentioned, this is one of the things that has shifted quite a bit in the past few years. And do you see this? You mentioned changes coming in October. Do you see this as a potential to continue or what's the feeling like out there in terms of continuing to practice virtually or other methods that are potentially going to be available? So I think, you know, I, from what I understand, what the ministry is going to say is if it is your family physician or a primary care provider providing virtual care, then that's fine. The codes are not going to be cut. But if it's one of these, you know, new telemedicine apps that have come about in the last few years and there's no continuity, I believe they're not going to be sustainable because they're just not going to get paid. Um, you know, I can understand the benefits of both. Um, right now, there's such a shortage of primary care physicians that people need access, right? But I think one of the concerns that we've found is that with some of these telemedicine platforms, there's no continuity and patients might not be getting the care that they need. And it might be redundant, right? They might see someone on an app that says, well, you need to go in person. So now we've just, you know, kind of wasted that appointment. So it, it has to be done right in terms of virtual care. But what we really need is we need access to primary care. Like it's a fundamental issue that, you know, we have, that's a, a topic, a whole other topic of how do we build that access, right? Now we've got, you know, pharmacists that are doing lots of consults for, for patients. We've got nurse practitioners that are taking on that role because there's just not enough family physicians currently. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that's really had a light shed on it recently or over the past few years. Yeah, we have to be innovative of how we're delivering care where we're delivering care, right? It, you know, different technology is definitely going to be helpful, but how do we use it responsibly? But how do we also provide community-based care where people need it, when people need it, right? That people are now expecting that if they want something in terms of seeing a provider, they want to be able to see the provider now, right? So we have to now figure out how this is going to change um, with the new developments um, that are coming end of the year. But I think the biggest learning we have as, you know, healthcare professionals is we have to be fluid. We have to uh, look at some of the challenges and implement solutions fast. I feel like healthcare in Canada 
definitely legs when we're looking at, you know, some of the interventions we use. Um, and so hopefully with, you know, with COVID, one of the silver linings will be that our healthcare system is more reactive. Um, and not reactive in a bad way, but proactive, but also recognizing what we need and implementing things quicker. Mm -hmm. So it's having that balance of reacting to the things that are currently gaps in what is currently provided, as well as being proactive and being able to have that vision, what are the potential gaps in the future to be able to address them now so that we don't experience them so many years down the line. I mean, like, look at chronic diseases. I mean, it's not something new, right? People have had chronic diseases for years, but our healthcare system has been very slow to find sustainable solutions, right? And a lot of us look to, you know, the Nordic countries to say, well, how are they developed delivering primary care in a community way that involves all healthcare professionals, right? And the community to support each other. And in Canada, again, most of the money goes towards acute care, right? But we have to have a shift on how are we going to develop primary care models in the community that are sustainable, that use not only family physicians, but other healthcare workers, um, to provide the best care and keeping people in their homes and in their communities, right? And I think lifestyle medicine is a perfect way to do that, right? Because we're addressing root cause of illness. And ideally, we, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing lifestyle medicine and going to schools and educating people around, you know, youngsters on how to eat and how to build communities. And I think it has to start at the education level of, of kids, right? And families. And we have to look at the context of the entire family when providing health care. Uh, we can't just, you know, provide healthcare to one person and not the entire family. And that's where community-based personalized medicine can really improve that. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's so much potential with lifestyle medicine. It's just how do we use all that lifestyle medicine has to offer in a way that's responsible and has that reach and see the effects that we want to be able to educate individuals and have that available within the system to yeah. make it accessible true and we really have to look to the united states and you know in lifestyle medicine because they have really interesting innovative ways of developing lifestyle medicine even in inner city hospitals right um, through different funding models so we really have to turn to the south and looking at how they deliver lifestyle medicine because i think they've got some really interesting models and also using technology right so using tracking devices using ai how to remotely monitor people but again we have to work in you know hand in hand with governments along with you know how are you going to fund this because it's it can be expensive right um, but if we invest in it now we're going to save costs down the down the line right and we're going to keep people healthier which is our goal right we want to keep people healthy and out of the hospitals living at home um, and aging well and gracefully and healthy at home and so interventions have to start when kids are you know in school and we have to look at, at children in their family context and provide lifestyle medicine you know tools and techniques and counseling at that stage so mm -hmm. i think the educational based interventions are really important if there is any final message that you think people need to hear that is something that people could do themselves to kind of either dip their toe or if they're already involved in lifestyle medicine, what's something more that you would recommend to broaden their knowledge or experience? I mean, I think, you know, for the general public, I definitely think, you know, podcasts, conferences are really important. It's a great way to connect with people that are interested in similar things, right? I think reading around lifestyle medicine is really important. And also I, I want to emphasize, you know, 
it's been hard over the last two years of the pandemic and with isolation, right? So when people feel safe and when it's safe to, you know, come out in the community more is to have that engagement, right? I usually, when I counsel with my counsel, my patients, I usually say, listen, start small, start with something that is really, you think you can, you know, achieve within a few weeks, whether it's like just walking with someone for like 15 minutes a day and slowly build, because what we know is once you have one or two positive changes, there's a ripple effect, right? We're not going to change your whole life in a month. We're not going to change, you know, you know, deal with all the root cause of your illness. But what we see is if you're making one or two changes and you're seeing the difference, it's going to create momentum. And, you know, a lot of people psych themselves up. I, how do I prepare for this? How do I prepare for this? What, what do I do? And my message to people is you just do it. There's no such thing as preparing. You want to exercise, you just buy some shoes and you walk outside, right? I think we all as humans get caught up in, well, how is this going to work? What do we have to do mentally to prepare ourselves? I think part of it is action. We need action. If we keep on thinking about things and not actually moving on that action, that's what stagnates most people. And I find in lifestyle medicine and that with the behavioral coaching, it's like one action item, just do it. Don't think about it, just do it. And that becomes a habit, right? So I think what we can learn from this is, you know, community is important um, and we have to find ways to engage back with the community and to just, you know, do things that are creating meaning, meaning for us, right? I know a lot of people during the pandemic have taken up hobbies and interests that they never would have, right? Because we're all kind of on this rat race <laughs> and we kind of, we don't know what the end destination is. So I think a lot of lifestyle medicine is actually slowing down sitting with ourselves and realizing what gives us fulfillment and what gives us happiness, because we can do all the lifestyle changes for people, but if they're caught in, in a toxic environment or they're in a work environment, they're not happy. And if they're in a relationship, they're not happy and that affects people's health. Right. So I think, you know, we've had time to pause hopefully during the pandemic and to kind of reflect on what we each want for our lives. And I would, I would suggest for physicians or healthcare providers, if you're interested, you know, look at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, take a small course, listen to one of their podcasts or their, you know, their, they've got lots of online seminars just to get your appetites kind of wet and say, well, what can I do in my practice, right? We don't have to all certify in lifestyle medicine, but we all should be aware of it um, and how to help our patients with that. Dr. Sheila Laku, thank you so much for your time today and all your great insights and sharing your own experiences. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Stephanie. I've had a great time. Thanks for having me on. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sheila Laku, for speaking with us and sharing her insights. And of course, thank you for listening. Sign up for our newsletter on our website or visit our social media for information on ticket sales and updates. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time!